All right, uh, John 18, we're looking at the end of chapter 18 this morning. As Pastor Greg mentioned earlier, next Sunday we have a guest speaker, and then we'll return to John chapter 19 um, the following Sunday and get into the, uh, the, the series of events that actually lead us to the crucifixion proper in the month of May. Uh, we'll be doing something a little different in the month of May as well, and I'll just give you a heads up about it now. Uh, you'll notice it next Sunday because uh, typically on the first week of the month, in addition to our normal service, we also take communion, right? That's our normal tradition. Well, uh, next Sunday, we won't be taking communion, um, and that's not because we're against communion. That's because, um, because the rest of the weeks in May, we're going to take communion every week. Now, that's not going to be a, that's not something we're looking to continue in perpetuity, per, per, perpetuity. but um, because we're going through specifically the cross every week through the month of May, we thought that would be a great way to help us to continue to remember, to plant that deeply in our hearts so that we don't just make this an exercise of going through the scripture academically but that we remember what it means to us, how great the sacrifice, how great the love of our Lord Jesus. So starting the second Sunday through the rest of May, uh, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper each Sunday as a remembrance of what he did for us at the cross. So we look forward to that. All right, this morning, there's one name from antiquity that is well known around the world both in Christian circles and non-Christian circles. I imagine there are very few Roman governors whose name has been enshrined in memory to the degree of the name that we're considering this morning. This was not a good day for Pontius Pilate. Pilate was, just to give you a little background, Pilate was a native of Seville in Spain. He had married a granddaughter of the Roman emperor Augustus, which had given him access into the royal family of the Roman Empire. He was given the curatorship, or the Bible often refers to him as the governor of Judea in the year 26 AD. The previous people who had occupied that role had done their best, according to history, to show respect to the Jews. However, when Pilate came, he made the mistake of not doing that. In fact, when Pilate arrived, for example, he made his way immediately from the coast, the Mediterranean, all the way to Jerusalem, sending ahead of him troops marching, carrying banners featuring the image of Tiberius Caesar. And what you need to remember about Tiberius Caesar is that he was regarded by the Romans, as many of the Caesars were, as a godlike figure, someone who was worshipped in the Roman emperor and, and the empire. And so you can imagine the Jews are furious by this insult to their religious beliefs in one God. Huge crowds flocked down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where Pilate was stationed to protest his arrival in this way. Pilate had his soldiers drive all these huge crowds of people into a large stadium. 
And when he threatened to have every single one of them killed for their rebellious gathering, their protesting, every single man that had gathered, every Jew, knelt down in that stadium and bared their necks to Pilate. Can you imagine that? Thousands of people doing this at the same time. As if to say, bring it on. Pilate backed off. That was only the beginning of his troubles. Sometime later, he decided he would build an aqueduct to bring better water supply into the city. But he went to the temple and plundered the temple treasury in order to pay for it. Pilate was hated by the Jews. He also had conflict with Herod. We read about Herod in the story of the Gospels, don't we? Many times. There's a couple of different Herods. But, but Herod was a kind of puppet Jewish king for that region. And he didn't get along with him either. You may remember from last week's text that the Jews broke most of their own laws in their interrogation of Jesus. They broke the law about having a quick court case without due process. They broke the law about having it a capital case overnight. They broke the law about questioning directly the accused, which was forbidden in Jewish law. They broke the law about not having witnesses, not only against him, but for him on his behalf. So there's incredible irony in the opening verse of our text this week. Verse 8, verse 28, rather. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves, notice my dripping sarcasm, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Apparently, after Jesus left Annas, that's where our text was last week, they took Jesus to Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, where he was interrogated again illegally. Then they brought him on to Pilate's headquarters in Jerusalem. Luke's gospel tells us that initially Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod, claiming that because Jesus was from Galilee, Herod had jurisdiction over this Galilean. In fact, um, but ultimately Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. But in Luke 23, interestingly, Luke 23, 12 tells us that Pilate and Herod became friends over this whole Jesus incident. Isn't that nice? In our text here in verse 28, the phrase early morning probably means before 6 a.m. The Romans typically began their workday very early in the morning, and they usually concluded all their business before noon. And now here we see the first of many ironies in this passage this morning. The Jews wait outside the headquarters in the colonnade because the Mishnah, which was a book of Jewish oral traditions, not, not the scripture, but a book of traditions, said that a Jew would be unclean if he entered the house of a Gentile. 
And so here the Jews that have brought Jesus to Pilate, they take these elaborate precautions. They don't want to be ritually contaminated so that they can eat the Passover. At the very time, they've been spending the entire evening manipulating the judicial system of the Jews in order to secure the death of someone who alone is the true Passover. Irony. Blatant hypocrisy. This text drips with it. But Pilate, in his administration of this incident, does observe the Roman laws. You see that because in verse 28, it begins with part one of the Roman legal process, which is the accusation. And this is how I'm structuring the text here this morning. Four short points. Number one, accusation, verses 28 through 32. We're told there that Pilate went out to the Jews that had brought Jesus to him since they wouldn't come in. And he asked them the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? In other words, what's your charge? What's the indictment? Now, there may very well be a hint of disgust in Pilate's voice. We don't know. But it's as if he's saying to them, you turned him over to me, even after I've sent him to Herod, and he's come back, right? You turned him over to me, but you haven't told me what the charges are. Come on, tell us what the charges are. And what is their response? Their response to him is also indicative of the disgust and the arrogance that they're sending right back at him. Look what they say. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Duh. It's like, well, what do you think? You think we brought you an innocent man? Which, of course, is exactly what they had done. Do you notice what they're avoiding, though, by doing that? They're avoiding making any specific charges. They're, they're answering Pilate evasively. In other words, they know full well that they don't have some kind of watertight case against Jesus to make. And they may have hoped that Pilate would just simply sign the death warrant and, and uh, on their own say so. Now, John's record that, that comes after this indicates to us the charge that they did eventually come up with. But in Luke's gospel, in Luke's account of this passage, we, 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 have, we have the full accusation. And this is what it says in Luke 23, 2. The charge is we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's the charge. Of course, their real problem with Jesus is what? He, they, they think he's guilty of blasphemy, don't they? They knew that's not going to fly in the Roman court. Romans aren't going to execute anybody for blasphemy against the Jewish God. And so, here's the accusations they come up with. Pilate only seems in our passage in John to give attention to the third part of the charge which did have the potential to threaten the Roman state, the fact that Jesus claimed to be a king. Now, the governor, obviously, this whole passage, and the passage that, that comes next uh, that Pastor Greg will follow up with in a couple of weeks, um, it's very clear the governor does not want to get involved in this dispute. Uh, he had already tried to send him away to Pilate. Three times here in John's Gospel, he will tell this group that Jesus is innocent. Verse 38 and then twice in chapter 9. 
19. Here's what he says to the group now. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Do you see how he's, he's pushing this away? He doesn't want to deal with this. He doesn't want to get in the middle of this Jewish internal problem. Now you notice what they say back to him. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Notice they've already got Jesus killed, right? They've already come to the conclusion he's going to die. He's going to be put to death. And they're not qualified It's not lawful for them to put anyone to death. And there's irony in that statement too when you stop and think about it at a number of levels. Because not only did the Jews lack the right to impose capital punishment under Roman law, but more importantly, they were forbidden by God's law to execute anyone who wasn't formally convicted of an offense. And here they are already saying he has to die. So they're breaking every law in their own book. And their reaction here to Pilate's kind of teasing remark back to them about taking Jesus back and dealing with this themselves really amounts to an admission of their own illegality in their dealings with Jesus. But notice what the text goes on to say. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, all of this mess demonstrates both the hostility of his own people, right? He came to his own, his own received him not. John said that right from the beginning. But also the prophetic word of Scripture. Jesus himself had said that he would be lifted up, right? The scriptures, particularly Psalm 22, talks about the Messiah being pierced in his hands and his feet. The Bible is clear. Jesus' own words were clear about the kind of death that Jesus had to die, and it was not going to come from the Jews. There was only one way Jesus was going to die on a cross, on a tree, and it would come through the Roman Empire. This was the plan all along in the mind of God. So you have the accusation. Notice, secondly, there's an examination, verses 33 to 35. In contrast to Jewish law, Roman law did make provision for the direct questioning of a prisoner. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Here he is. This sorry-looking figure, he's been beaten, bloodied by the Jews overnight. He's standing before Pilate, bound in chains. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now watch how Jesus responds here. He responds with a counter-question, doesn't he? A question that draws attention away from himself and back onto his accusers who brought these charges against him. Jesus knows that that phrase, king of the Jews, could be interpreted a number of different ways. Is Pilate thinking in the Jewish sense or in a Roman sense? And Jesus answered and said, look, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? In other words, does this relate 
to your position as Roman governor? Are you the one asking me this question? Or did others, the Jewish authorities, say it to you about me? And suddenly again, as we've seen all along through this process, we see Jesus taking charge of the situation as he's done over and over again, driving this drama right along line with the the timeline of the Father. He knows the rules of evidence. He knows hearsay convictions were prohibited in the Roman law. Pilate answers him, evidently frustrated. Am I a Jew? Your own nation, your own chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? What Pilate's seeking clarification on is, have you done anything that threatens the sovereignty of Caesar? Anything for which I need to punish you for? So there's an accusation. There's an examination And now, there's a clarification. Verses 36 and 37. And it's at this point that Jesus admits to being a king. But then he goes on to define what that means to show that it does not challenge Caesar's position. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. I want you to see what Jesus is not claiming here. Jesus is not disclaiming any authority over the world, generally. He's not saying, I'm not in charge. But what he is saying is, my kingdom is not like a worldly kingdom. My kingdom is not like the United States of America. It doesn't look like a human power base. And we have a comment that are made about these words by the Apostle Paul over in 1 Timothy 6.13. This is what Paul writes. Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. That's what Paul says. And here, Jesus is making this good confession to Pilate. It's good in its manner. He speaks with courtesy and respect to Pilate as the secular authority. It's good in its substance. He's contrasting human affairs and divine affairs. He's speaking about the sovereignty of God over everything and everyone, everywhere, at all times. My kingdom is not of this world. That does not mean to say that everything in this world is not influenced by it or under it. We know, according to Scripture, ultimately... Everything is under the umbrella of the authority of the Lord Jesus, right? But Jesus wants to distinguish between what that kind of kingdom is. So he speaks as a king, and he speaks about his kingdom. But yet, if you were to look at Jesus that morning, early in the morning, standing in Pilate's hall in Jerusalem, he did not look like a king, did he? That's the way things have remained. There's a bit of a contradiction 
in Christ's kingdom even today to some people. It doesn't look like a kingdom. There are some branches of the church and there have been periods in church history where Christian people have wanted the kingdom of God to look like a kingdom of this world. There have been periods where we've wanted the the trappings of power and prestige and control. But in the real world, where the real Christ is present, here before Pilate, he does not look like a king. He's unrecognizable as a king. He stands there as a king with an alternative kingdom. Not a kingdom like we think of. I want you to see how Jesus unpacks this in his, in his words here. He, uh, as we've mentioned here, he, he puts it first negatively, right? So he talks about it negatively, and then he talks about it positively. Negatively, my kingdom is not of this world, or not from this world, another way we could say it. Earlier on in the gospel, you remember back in chapter 6, the Lord had resisted people's efforts to make him a king. Do you remember that? Early on, I think it was after the feeding of the 5,000, wasn't it? Where people saw these miracles that he was doing, they saw the power of his authority, they saw the people flocking to him by the thousands. They're fired up with the idea that this is the kind of populist leader who's going to galvanize the Jews against the Romans, and we're finally going to get these people off our backs. This is the kind of Messiah we've always wanted. And they tried to make him king. John 6.15. Throughout John's gospel especially, Jesus strongly disavows any suggestions of a political kingdom. His kingdom is not preoccupied with territory or taxes. As a king, he's not concerned with, with pomp or privilege. Certainly, that's true in his life. Christ's kingdom is heavenly and spiritual, at least at this point, right? Now in the future, things are going to change, right? His kingdom will be earthly in the future. But to this point, it's heavenly, it's spiritual, it transcends space and time. That kingdom is wherever there are subjects. You can't point to it geographically, look at boundaries and say, there is the kingdom of God, like you can say, there is the United States of America. You can't point to a place on the map where the kingdom of God is, and yet the kingdom of God is recognizable because there are subjects of that kingdom wherever Jesus' people are. Here we are gathered this morning in this room, and we are gathered to hear this morning as both subjects of King Jesus and citizens of America. We belong to two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. This world is in a state of rebellion, has always been. We live as subjects of King Jesus among rebels in Jesus' world. 
That's the situation we find ourselves in. Jesus underlines the nature of his kingdom. Look at, uh, look at this in the implications for his people. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Some people want to build their kingdom on the basis of terrorist acts and armed violence in our world today. And we've seen it, unfortunately, even in our own country, haven't we? Jesus is saying his kingdom is not built that way. No. Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, they'd be fighting. But they're not fighting. And even earlier on that evening, when Peter had drawn his sword, remember? to defend Jesus against those coming to arrest him in the garden. And he had cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Malchus, remember Malchus? Jesus healed the man, and he tells Peter, put your sword away. The kingdom of Christ is not furthered or advanced by fighting. That's why we're not blowing people up. That's why we're not killing people. We're, that, that's not how the kingdom of God advances. We have swords, don't we? But it's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We have weapons, but they're not AK-47s and bombs. They're not tanks or airplanes. They're mighty through God, though, the Scripture says to the pulling down of spiritual strongholds. As we take the word of God and we preach it and we live it. These are Jesus' words. We go to our founder and our founder says, we don't fight to extend his kingdom. That's not how his kingdom grows. So he puts it negatively, then he puts it positively. Look at verse 39. He doesn't deny that he's a king, but Jesus' kingdom is of the truth. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Another way you could interpret that is, you are saying correctly or rightly that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So according to Jesus, the king, speaking about his kingdom, what is the hallmark of his kingdom? Truth. And what is the hallmark of those who belong to Jesus' kingdom? They listen to it. They listen to his voice. And you notice how Jesus says, this is why I was born. I came to bear witness to the truth. And what does it mean to be one of Jesus' people? 
What does it mean to belong to Jesus' kingdom? It means to show allegiance to him by believing his testimony, believing his word, building your life upon it. And in John's gospel, the word truth is nothing less than the self-disclosure of God in his son who is the truth. And this provokes Pilate's famous question as we move from clarification into finally deliberation about Jesus, verses 38 to 40. There's two deliberations that I I see in the text here. The first is by Pilate in verse 38. Pilate said to him, after Jesus has just explained about his kingdom, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. What is truth? Famous question of Pilate. Scholars question what tone of voice Pilate had when he's saying this to Jesus. We can't tell. We weren't there. There are no video recordings, no audio recordings. We don't know what tone of voice. Some people think Pilate was being flippant toward Jesus. Is there any such thing as truth? Come on, Jesus. Maybe he was disgruntled or discouraged or cynical. Maybe he was really wanting to know the answer. We don't know. But let's answer Pilate's question for him, shall we? Maybe it's a question you have as well this morning. What is truth? I want to give you four quick things about truth. Truth is singular. It's not truths, it's truth. It's not, this is your truth, and this is my truth. Truth is one coherent reality that holds together history, science, values, life. Truth is Singular, there is one truth. Truth is also objective. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about true truth that matters. True truth, something that's true for everyone, whoever they are, wherever they are, for all times. It doesn't change according to the individual. It doesn't change according to the date on the calendar. It can be tested. It can be examined. It can be trusted. Third, truth comes by revelation. Truth is a given thing. John's gospel has emphasized this, hasn't it? Do you remember all the way back to chapter 1? Grace and truth came by Christ Jesus. It doesn't come by speculation or investigation. It is a given thing. We could never have come to know God if God had not disclosed himself to us. Do you remember what Jesus said a couple chapters back 
um, or the, the early part of chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, that wonderful prayer that we took a couple months to work through. And in verse 2, he's speaking of himself. He's praying to the Father, and he says this, You have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And what is eternal life? Jesus says, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only True God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Truth is something that comes by revelation. It is something that is given to us. You don't come up with truth. You don't discover it. You don't create it. It is given to you. How do you know the truth? You come to know the truth by knowing Jesus, don't you? Jesus is himself the embodiment of truth. If you know Jesus, it makes sense of history. If you know Jesus, it makes sense of everything. It makes sense of your life. It makes sense even of suffering and death, doesn't it? Jesus brings sense to reality because Jesus is reality. Well, after asking the famous question, the text says, Pilate turns away from Jesus. What is truth? And out the door. It seems he turns abruptly away from Jesus. He shows no desire to hear anymore. No desire to listen to the voice of Jesus, which is an indication he's probably not among those the Father had given to the Son. Because they listen. They hear his voice, don't they? What's his conclusion? He goes out to the crowd. Jesus is innocent. There's also deliberation by the people, verses 39 and 40. Pilate says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. For whatever reason, according to the other Gospels, maybe it was the urging of his wife, who had had a dream about Jesus, that it upset her. Read about that in Matthew 27. Maybe it was Pilate's desire to embarrass the Jewish leaders because he thought the people certainly would ask for Jesus to be released because he's not guilty, right? Maybe it was at the request of the crowd itself. Mark seems to indicate that, Mark 15. But for whatever reason, and maybe all of those reasons, the governor offers to release Jesus. Now, we know this can't happen, right? This isn't the plan. But he offers to release Jesus. He calls Jesus the king of the Jews, doesn't he? Interesting. We know it's also the title he puts on the cross later, isn't it? Not necessarily because Pilate believes in Jesus. I don't see any indication that he does. But maybe to antagonize the religious authorities who don't want him to be viewed that way. And yet, probably totally catching Pilate off guard, what does the crowd ask for? (laughs) Barabbas. Greg pointed out earlier his name meant son of the father. In fact, there is an ancient text in um, Matthew's gospel that suggests that his full name may have been Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father, 
Jesus, who we know is Son of the Father. What an interesting choice. All four Gospels tell us a little something about this criminal. He was not simply a robber in the context that we would think about that term, as John's Gospel calls him. But he was a violent rebel, probably more of what we would think of today as a terrorist. Mark's Gospel says that he had participated in bloody insurrection against Rome. He was a murderer. Mark 15, 7. And so, we see yet another irony here, don't we? From John's account of the life of Jesus. The crowds call for the release of a man who had committed murder in his struggle against Rome, while at the same time calling for the condemnation of a man falsely accused of being a danger to Rome. Surely Pilate will not allow this, right? He would see right through this irony, yes? No. Sadly, but providentially, he will give in to the crowd's cries and release Barabbas, condemning Jesus to death on a Roman cross, just as the Scriptures foretold he would die. He will be lifted high and placed on a tree. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front. We're going to sing a final song here in a moment. As they're coming, just a couple comments. You know, like Jesus, we are not here to pose a military or political threat to the structures of the world. That is not the role of the church. But as Jesus' people, we live under his rule and serve under his orders. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. And his kingdom has to do with truth. Truth about God. Truth about man. Truth about how man can be saved from and rescued from the sin that that so marks and taints and stains human life. That he brings us into the kingdom of God. The truth that Jesus then rules and reigns as king in the hearts and minds of his people. That's the kingdom of God here, now. Jesus says, all who know the truth come to me. And the question this morning that I would leave for you and for me is this. Am I on the side of truth? Because all who know the truth come to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're on the wrong side of truth. And if you are hearing his voice today in the words of Scripture, if you are seeing 
what Jesus is not, going, not only going through now, but is about to go through as an innocent man for the sins of the world, for all those who will believe in Him and trust in Him, He will bear their sins on His own body on the tree, on the tree, on the Roman cross. And if you are seeing that this morning, if your eyes are being opened, come to Him. If you want to know how to do that, if you want, to, if you want some help in understanding how the Bible explains to begin following Jesus, we'd love to take a few minutes this morning after our service is over. If you head over here to the left side of the auditorium, where the cubicle is here in the corner. Uh, we'll have a counselor there for a few moments after the service who'll be happy to open the Bible and show you how you can be saved, how you can become a follower of Jesus, how you can become a part of His kingdom, how you can be on the right side of truth. We would love to introduce you to our Savior, our precious, innocent Savior. We're forgiven because he was forsaken. We're accepted because he was condemned. That's the love that is presented for you in this text and in all of this section of John's Gospel. And John wrote these words so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you might have life through his name. I trust you do. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a closing song just expressing that, that love and that thankfulness that we have for Jesus' great work of substitution on our behalf on the cross.